0: Hello and welcome to the programme, I'm Jake Cantor. On Talking TV this week, award-winning filmmaker Vanessa Engel will reveal all about her new BBC Two series, Inside Harley Street. Also on the agenda, we'll talk election manifestos, a radical rethink at Sky Living, and a potential new chat show for Katie Hopkins. Finally, we'll pick over some new offerings on the box, stand by for the verdict on ITV's new Christopher Eccleston drama, Safe House, and Gordon Ramsay playing Happy Families in CBBC's Matilda and the Ramsay Bunch. That's all coming up over the next half an hour. At Talking TV Towers this week, we have Mr. Alex Farber, broadcast web editor. Hello, my friend. Hello, Jake. You've taken your glasses off. (laughs) They're on the microphone. (laughs) Yes, we could expect this maturity from you, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Also,
1: he's back. Yes, I'm delighted to welcome Stephen D. Wright. Hello. Hello. Have you missed me? I've missed you, Stephen. Have you missed us? No. I've been listening to the podcast and thinking I, would, I could have said that funnier and more, more wittily.
0: I could have done it better.
1: I could have done it better, yeah. So I'm How here to prove the point today.
0: How are things? Is uh, Is life good?
1: Me personally or the TV industry? Because, you know, (laughs) we go hand in hand. So, you know, things are all right at the moment. It's sunny. It's sunny outside. It's very warm. Exactly.
0: And the TV industry? The TV industry
1: doesn't seem to be so horrible, but, you know, give me five minutes. I'll find things to pick on.
0: Uh, First up, the major political parties published their election manifestos this week and all contain some reference to the UK broadcasting industry. Uh, There were mixed results for the BBC, with the Tories pledging to freeze the licence fee and UKIP planning to cut the corporation's funding. Labour and the Lib Dems, on the other hand, both backed a strong BBC. The two parties also promised to keep Channel 4 in public hands. However, there was silence on the issue from the Tories amid rumours the party has weighed up privatising the broadcaster. Uh, Shall we start with the BBC? Do you think it's uh, worrying times if the Tories remain in office, Stephen?
1: Uh, I think it's it's, it's worrying times full stop if the Tories get in um, or get back into power. What Just it generally. means TV is, it, it seems to be such a weird way to look at it. It really does. I mean, the country's more important than, than the, than <laughs> no the television comes first. Fee. Well, a little bit. Um, so it was difficult. I read all the various manifesto quotes or whatever, and none of it kind of, it, they, they all seem like lies anyway, and who knows what's going to happen once you're in. I mean, for any, for every, you know, the Tories get political capital out of attacking the BBC. That's sort of part of their kind of shtick. Uh, whereas the Labour Party will will defend the BBC, so it's it's kind of to me it's same old same old really. There was nothing that radical when I looked at it and thought, oh, you know, can't vote them because they might do this. It's, it so didn't it didn't seem to me uh, a particularly sort of strong political thing to be uh, pushing or whatever. You know, privatisation of Channel Four is possibly more interesting. I don't know whether people will go and lie in the streets and burn their bras in support of the privatisation or, or against the privatisation Channel 4, whereas the BBC people will, you know, take a bullet for the BBC. Barbara, would you take a bullet for the BBC?
2: No, I certainly wouldn't. But one of the things in its defence that I thought was most interesting about the manifesto was that while the Conservative Party, you know, pledged to keep the freeze on the licence fee, it did acknowledge that there was probably going to be more... Top slicing. More top slicing. Thank you, Jake. Um, Which, in effect, in real terms, in my mind, if they're going to be, you know, is a cut. Because if they're going to be taking the funds that the BBC otherwise would have had and attributing that to whether it's local TV or whether it's super fast broadband, there's a debate to be had as to whether these are the
0: things that the licence fee should be funding. Mm. And the Tories have got a record of dipping into the licence fee. As you said, local TV, there's S4C, there's the World Service now, which is coming out of BBC Mm. funding. No, no, the the Uh, Tories
1: are definitely, you know, treating the BBC as a little sort of piggy bank. Then they think, oh, you know, they're sort of awash with money. We can steal a bit without anybody bothering. They're definitely using that kind of uh, pejorative sort of stance against the the licence fee. You know, they're not doing this for editorial reasons or the BBC isn't spending its money on programmes properly. They're doing it because they think bollocks why not
0: and what about channel 4 privatization i mean it's speculation that this is on the agenda
1: yeah i mean you I, you're
0: saying it whether the, the industry won't burn its bras I
1: don't know no i don't know if they'll do it in the same way the bbc is a kind of you Surely know be a, a, a disaster for telling it channel absolutely of course yeah, it would be yeah. but um, whether or not the kind of pub that this, this it has the same emotional pull mm. as the bbc does you know it's like the nhs you the, you know they're dismantling the nhs bit piece by piece but they're not coming out and saying it if they go for the BBC, people will, will come up, you know, up in arms. Channel Four may get away with it if Channel Four has a bad week with some rubbishy shows. Whether the general public love it as much as the producers do, because Channel Four is still the only channel where you can get away with things and do, do whatever, you know, that is uh, is something we need to fight for. But whether or not that principle is is a, what's the word, shared by the public, I don't know.
2: But I don't know the extent of the sympathies that Channel Four will be able to stoke because it's not clear to me whether the public is massively clear in terms of Channel 4's, Channel 4's ownership, ownership, yeah. ownership structure anyway, which isn't the most straightforward. It's not a simple you know, structure to communicate. And so I think that it's a harder message, therefore, to distill. And so sympathy is always going to be more limited towards
0: Channel 4 from a public point of view. You sort of get the feeling that the future of the BBC is a much more public debate, whereas mm.
1: Channel 4 is perhaps more industry-focused. Mm. I mean, I heard a really interesting debate the other day but by a producer who said to me that Margaret Thatcher started Channel 4 in order to create an indie sector that was non-unionised, that was free mobility, et etc., et cetera, no rules, to take on the BBC. She did it as a deliberate attack on the BBC. So it's like, all these years later, uh, you know, is it going to be Channel 4 that sort of goes under the knife or will it be the BBC or or will it be both? I don't know. So, so you know, you, you never think about these things, but, you know, this was the kind of the long game from the sort of 70s onwards. these people, this indie community, will take down the the might of the BBC. So maybe there's been a a long war against the BBC already. Uh, Next on the agenda is Sky Living, uh, which
0: will retreat from commissioning and have its originations budget moved to Sky One. Instead, the channel will focus on glossy US imports, such as Elementary and Hannibal. Uh, It has been suggested that Sky Living has struggled to find its identity since it was acquired by Sky in 2010, with a string of factual entertainment series, including The Face and Style to Rock, failing to fulfil their potential. Alex, you've been looking at this a bit this week, haven't you? Yeah, I have indeed. So
2: I think one of the um, main problems that seems to have come across from Sky Living's point of view was that really, following its uh, acquisition by Sky from Virgin in, where were we, 2010? 2010. 2010, they tried to take the channel more mainstream and away from its female-focused roots. And I think that by doing that, with the best intentions, they perhaps had the um, unfortunate consequence of uh, alienating some of their core audience. I, you know, I was talking to one producer who said that you know you, you can either be a, a hardware store or a hairdresser's. You can't try and be all things to all people in multi-channel world because you just end up falling between stalls, and uh, the messaging is mixed, and producers and viewers alike are confused. Talk us through some of the origination and some of the things that have perhaps not quite hit the mark. I don't think that the programming particularly has been poor quality. I mean, if you look at The Face, you mentioned a couple of them there then, Jake. You've got The Face, which had Naomi Campbell was fronting it, Star to Rock, 2020 show had Rihanna, you know, heavily involved, and M, which was another critical success and was subsequently picked up by HBO. You know, I think, you know, in some respects, some of the programming was standout, but I just think that viewers failed to find it perhaps as a wider dilution of the
1: channel as a whole. Stephen, identity crisis. There's there's an identity crisis at Sky. Full stop. You can't really tell the difference between Sky One, Sky Living, and Sky Atlantic. You really can't. You know, I watch TV constantly. I love Sky Living. I've I've watched a lot of these originations. Thought Dollar Den was one of the best shows ever seen. Loved the Face. I mean, the people who watched it really enjoyed it. But and I watch a lot of the the acquisitions as well. But whether or not you know, there are three distinct channels. On Sky is is kind of very debatable. Them I mean, is like, you know you can tell what BBC Three and BBC Four are. They they're incredibly unique and distinct. Sky One, Sky Living, and Sky Atlantic. Hmm. There's a hair breadth of a difference between them. You know, obviously Living was slightly more female skewing, but. I think the possible problem was it became Sky living rather than living Sky sort of bl- not overtook it or blanded it out or whatever just sort of it sub- subsumed it or whatever is that the that real word mm. um, you know what I mean it sort of it started it got sucked into Sky Sky is the identity not Sky One Sky living Sky Atlantic I watch Sky. It, maybe that was the mistake. Trying to make five or six different Sky channels, you know what I mean? Sky Plus One and Sky Twenty Four, whatever. I don't know. It should have had a different name and not live and kept the Living and lost the Sky. Perhaps. I don't yeah. Know. So they're going to shift the commissioning budget to Sky One. Do you think? I mean, I think a... that's a shame. I thought Sky Living was a really good channel. Really, I mean, it's you know, you said some of the programs were excellent. The the, the and I thought it got better under Antonia. I think it's a shame she's leaving because she's a, she's got good editorial uh, judgment. You know, Sky should be all those three channels in one rather than split into three channels. Okay, we'll move on to our
0: final uh, piece of news. Uh, Plenty to choose from in our commission of the fortnight, but I thought we would cut through the high-end drama and agenda-setting docs and head straight to Katie Hopkins and her potential new chat show for TLC broadcast revealed last week that the divisive former Apprentice star is in talks with TLC about the untitled project. Her series My Fat Story became the Discovery Channel's top-rated show last year. Stephen,
1: Katie Hopkins fan? A huge Katie Hopkins fan. She's a professional troll. She's the female Jeremy Clarkson. She's much like myself. She'll say anything for attention. So she should work really well on TV. I mean, basically, you know, whether or not she's got a kind of journalistic validity and all that kind of bollocks, who knows? She should generate controversy or opinion, divisive opinion. I mean, depending on whether or not the show is a daily show or a weekly show, I would think weekly is probably better. That way you can, you know, repeat it multiple times on, on, on the channel. She know, she's clever enough to get the tabloid agenda to generate heat, to generate controversy. She's the Daily Mail rolled up into the... The personification of a kind of vile human being. That's exactly what you want on TV.
0: You can't blame TLC for wanting to try more with her, can
1: you? Blame them. I wouldn't blame them in the slightest. I think it's a sh- I think it's a shrewd. <laughs> well move. some might some might say, What well, how dare you give this woman a platform? Or well, then don't watch. Well, <laughs> you I mean, know, I'm surprised it's taken this long to somebody to give her a platform. I would have thought, you know, she was she was a star on on Subject Big Brother. She's a star every time she opens her mouth on This Morning. She should have had a show two years ago on Channel Five. She can hold her own. Do you know what I mean? She is offensive and whatever, but that's what we want. You know, we don't want it to go on and be empathetic and hear people, you know, coax out gentle revelations. We want her, you know, she's car crash TV. Yeah, and for a channel like TLC that needs to cut through, it's a great booking.
0: It gives it perhaps an identity that maybe Sky Living was missing. Well, Just thinking it,
1: back, all digital channels are about heat and noise because of the you know huge array of numbers. It's you know it, that, it's, that's the big problem with digital. You need to know that there's something about that channel, and sometimes it is one 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 show. Mm-hmm. TLC have had a few big hits in this kind of trashy mm-hmm. area, and you know good luck to them and okay. get her on um, Top Gear. <laughs> Female Jeremy Clarkson. the nice next top, yeah. <laughs> Actually, she hasn't
0: been linked to that role, has she? Well, so? She has yeah, now. But she, she, she is now. She's, She's the bookie's favourite, I've just heard. the death threats out, yeah? <laughs> Fantastic. Those are your headlines for this episode. Thanks to Alex and Stephen. Uh, up next, we delve into the exclusive world of private healthcare practices through the eyes of award winning filmmaker Vanessa Engel and her series Inside Harley Street. The director of World of Weight Loss and Money tells stories from both the patients' and doctors' points of view, revealing the secrets of a unique grid of roads in central London known as Harley Street. Engel's three-part BBC Two series is made in-house and bears the hallmarks of so much of her work, namely humour, historical context and human insight. We will welcome Vanessa in a moment, but first, here she is questioning prostate cancer specialist Professor Roger Kirby. I worked for 25 years in the NHS and I sometimes joke that that's longer, that that's more than you get for murdering your wife. Not that I've ever contemplated that, well, only a few times. <laughs> but I have done over 1,000 robotic prostatectomies, that's total prostate removals. And before we switched about 2005 to the use of the robot for this type of surgery, I'd done nearly 2,000 of the open operations.
3: Do you ever get bored of the prostate, Roger?
0: I love the prostate, no. I'm, I'm absolutely completely in love with the prostate gland. No, I'm never bored. Uh, there's an image for, for everyone listening. <laughs> uh, welcome, Vanessa. Thank you for joining us.
3: It's my pleasure.
0: Uh, why, why Harley Street?
3: Well, it's just a completely fascinating area, and it's perfect material for a documentary maker because so much is happening in this very small geographic area It's very pure documentary in a way, that you have a grid of streets and you can just mine this one place. But there is so much going on there. And I very quickly realised that there were these three worlds sort of superimposed upon one another. So there's private medicine, which is what most of us know Harley Street for. But then there's all the cosmetic medicine going on, which is quite a separate activity in a way. And then... Almost paradoxically, there's also all the complementary practitioners, which might seem in conflict with, you know, the very, very high end world class medical care that you can also go and have much more experimental treatments, quite unscientific treatments. So there were many paradoxes. There were many belief systems to explore. There was a wealth of ideas to explore as well as um, a multitude of different types of people who turn up there, and it all goes on behind closed doors. There's lots of images of closed doors and closed windows in the series, because it is all—it's you know—it's very discreet. It's very private. So I loved that. There's sort of nothing to see when you go there, but behind these doors and windows, the whole of human whole life world. is there.
0: That being the case, it strikes me that there must be sort of countless points of access that you had to negotiate. Is that, is that the case and how did you do that?
3: There were so many. I mean, I've made a lot of films <laughs> and I've made a lot of very complicated films. I've made series that have 80 to 100 contributors. This is probably the most complicated jigsaw puzzle I've ever attempted because for each practice that you see, you had to get access to the clinic. Then you had to get access to a doctor within that Then you had to get access to a patient. So for each little sequence that you see, there are effectively three access points and there are um, on average about eight or nine of those in each episode. So you can do the you can do the maths. Um, three. What's three? <laughs> My maths is terrible. <laughs> so is mine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So basically, there's about a hundred access points. it. Yeah. Then we had, and then because we were also telling the story of local life, we also had to, you know, we got access to the flower deliveries, to the cycle couriers, to. But we approached, you know, we we researched. Everything, you know, the shopkeepers, we talked to the postmen, to the builders, to the window cleaners. There was nobody we didn't approach. How much
0: opposition did you encounter?
3: Remarkably little. I mean, there were lots of doctors who didn't want to know. Zillion, we, we talked to zillions of doctors. I had a fantastic assistant producer called Liz Kempton and she talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of doctors in the course of the pre-production. So obviously the doctors you see are the doctors who said yes and there were many who just didn't want it. You were very cautious about the media and didn't want anything to do with it. But once we found the people who were willing to take part, then obviously we were kind of motoring.
0: And um, what about the patients themselves? Because obviously you get into very intimate detail about their conditions. Was that difficult?
3: Well in production terms we very often had no choice about who our patients were because in most instances we would go through the doctors to find a patient because you can't how else would you find them. So sometimes more than one patient would present themselves and we might have a choice but in most of the cases that you see the majority the patient is just the patient who a, the doctor was willing to approach, and and B, was willing to take part. It wasn't just willing, but they had to be presenting with whatever their problem was within our time frame. You know, so, so it was, um, that's why I say it's such a complicated jigsaw puzzle, because at no time did you know what their medical story would be or how it would develop. And I think in production terms, again, that's a really interesting challenge, because you've got a set, if you're working with a camera crew as I do, You've got a set number of filming days. You don't know who's going to turn up. You don't know what their medical problem is going to be. You don't know in what time frame it's going to resolve itself. And you have to make that work within your own budgetary parameters. So I think that is interesting because I think that increasingly commissioners are understandably quite reluctant to or nervous about commissioning. Projects that are so open-ended because what if nobody turns up or what if you can't do it in the time frame or what if the filming overruns by months?
0: It was always your intention to reach some resolution with the stories that you were following.
3: Yes, yes, that's always obviously you. that's what you aim for.
0: And I guess the first episode in a way is actually quite a good advertisement for Harley Street in the fact that the people that you follow have successful treatment, don't they?
3: Well, they do and they don't. I know. I mean, it it does appear to have a happy ending because some of them do. And, And obviously some of the, I think some of those doctors obviously did a fantastic job. We didn't know whether they would or not, whether the outcomes would be good. So the little Russian boy has a good outcome. But you know, the guy with Alzheimer's still has Alzheimer's at the end. They're not exclusively happy endings.
0: Were there any other challenges along the way that you encountered?
3: there there was just they were they were legion i mean you know it was very very difficult you know with these things you've got so many people on the go there's always a risk of losing access there's always a risk that a story will go down there's always a risk that there will be no outcome There's always a risk that you will come across difficult people who are trying to make your lives more complicated. We had a lot of very good relationships, but then, you know, you can find yourself in a clinic where there's a stroppy receptionist who doesn't want to be filmed and so suddenly you can't. You know, there's all sorts of sensitivities, so it was never anything other than very complicated.
0: Yeah, so if you were a doctor and performing a a health check on documentary making in the UK, what what would be your assessment?
3: Well, I think there have been some fantastic documentaries recently. Um, I think we are always saying that documentaries are in a sort of parlous state, but there have been fantastic films recently. There have been fantastic films, um, you know, in the cinemas as well as on the telly. Channel 4 is putting documentaries on in prime time, you know, several nights of the week and doing very well with them. The BBC is, you know, very proud of its documentary output. Um, uh, you know, I'm still in business. I think, um, I think it is a really interesting time for documentaries.
0: So you're pretty upbeat about the future.
3: Well, you know, being a documentary maker is always hard. I wouldn't want to be sort of pollyanna about it. But on the other hand, documentary makers always moan. So I think, um, <laughs> I think you know, if, you, if you've got good ideas that you're excited about, you're probably no worse off now than you've ever been.
0: Yeah, and what about the BBC more specifically? Do you, I mean, clearly you do a lot of work for the BBC. I'm employed by the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a salaried, I'm,
3: yeah. I'm BBC staff, okay. so yes, I do.
0: So what do you make of the plans to move production potentially into the commercial
3: sector? For me, in a way, it doesn't make much difference. You know, all I need is a commission and then I go off and make my films. And whether I'm making that for a corporate entity that is attached or isn't attached to the, to the mothership, I don't think it will make much difference to me day to day, to be honest. Yeah, uh,
0: and uh, just finally, what, what's the next project? Can you can you tell us?
3: I can. Um, I'm I've filmed most of it already. Actually, it's a single film for BBC Two about domestic violence, and it's about all the women who were killed in one calendar year by their partner or ex-partner. Which is and there's ninety of those women for 2013.
0: Wow, that sounds quite chastening.
3: It's very very. Um, frightening material, very affecting material, but I think it will make a very strong film.
0: Okay, well, good luck with the rest of the series and and the other BBC2 project. Inside Harley Street continues next Monday at 9pm on BBC2. finally this episode it's previews time joining me back on the talking TV sofa are Alex Farber and Stephen D Wright Uh, we will start with ITV's new drama Safe House which stars Christopher Eccleston as an ex-copper running a police protection refuge in Cumbria the four part series is made by 11th Hour Films the indie run by Jill Green in this clip Eccleston's character Robert weighs up an offer of running the aforementioned Safe House you miss it
1: don't you yeah Hello. Well, there is another way back. You're right. It's perfect, but she won't go for it. We're trying for a baby. Are
3: really going to spend the rest
1: of your life cleaning toilets? Not <laughs> making breakfasts? This could be a real opportunity, you know, not just for you. For her. Man in a safe house doesn't mean you have to stop trying for a baby, does it? Stephen. Hated it. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. From the first minute it came on... Don't hold it back. Was the creepy music, the ominous sort of synth playing in the background. It was like, what is this, a horror film? You <laughs> Every know, time was, the bad guy came on, it was what? just ridiculous. But the, but this creepy music started before the bad guy came on. I mean, as Christopher Eccleson, opening scene, he's swimming in a lake and you think he's going to get killed or murdered or something. It, it just felt like... A, too heavy-handed. You know, the, the plot is, is sort of feels a bit like... I've, I mean, the, the, the problem with this show is it feels like I've seen it about four times. It's all the same actors that play these kind of roles, all doing the same roles again. And I'm not saying they're not good at it, but it just felt very samey. But this over-egging of the kind of the thriller-ness of it or the, the the dark side. I mean, the villain was genuinely scary. That could have been the bit that you would, you know, but it was scary all the way through it. Every time a car came up, you thought somebody's going to get jumped. You know what I mean? You've got this kind of bizarre, super evil villain who's kidnapping <laughs> children and chasing people. And the police don't seem to be bothered. But it was, you know, this air of menace from the from the first second it was a it just felt like come on give us a break and i could i didn't find it entertaining that was the thing i mean you know if you watch something like happy valley last year that was a terrifying show that had a core of realism and you know normal sort of life, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and this sort of horror that suddenly hit it, which was all more powerful. This was sort of going for the sort of the same thing. It was more unhappy valley than you know what I mean. It was it was unhappy oh, like, valley. It was, nice. but you know what I mean. It was like it was that thing of a northern town or northern you know people and this kind of creepy violence and and and, and supposedly realistic. You know what I mean? But just ugh, heavy-handed. It's gonna be a massive hit then, isn't it? I thought it was better than Steven said and maybe listening to him now it was
2: a bit OTT but I thought it looked great I thought it was quite tense I enjoyed the performances and it made a change from you know some of the ITV dramas which can be bordering on the on the cheesy side and a little bit safe and it just felt a little bit far removed from that.
0: I'm surprised you like it, actually. I I thought you would uh, feel it was very heavy-handed. I thought it was very heavy-handed, actually.
2: Yeah, no, I think it was because it wasn't what I was expecting. You know, it was more along the lines of something like The Widower or something, which I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't... What I was expecting perhaps. And Christopher Eckerson
1: plays these parts in every single role. he, he always even plays look a brooding like he's, he's not trying he's phoning it in he, you know but he's, he's good, but he's just that it's not a stretch at all. you know this is Christopher Eccleston playing a dark, troubled whatever uh, you know sometimes he's a villain, sometimes he's a hero. It's like ugh. did
0: you like Christopher Eckerson Yeah, I thought he was all right. What did you think he brought to the, the show nothing. <laughs> it's, like, it's like we're ganging up on you. I don't <laughs> <That's all. no. laughs>
2: he was quite yeah, he was quite grizzled. He was quite troubled. I'll be interesting to see how um how him and his wife, you know, deal with the situation and the family that they've landed in. So
0: you watch in. the rest of the series? I will probably watch the rest of the series. <laughs>
1: Look, I'll never even go to the Lake District again. I hated it that much.
0: Well, even if it was a safe house being run by Christopher Eccleston, you would go to it. The
1: only safe house, the no, only place in the whole of Britain that you could go to, that house, as if.
0: It's not going to be safe either, is it? No, of Clearly, not. quite evidently, it's not well, going to be safe. The thing is, you know,
1: it just. Oh. <laughs> okay,
0: Safe House debuts on ITV on Monday, the 20th of April at 9 pm. Our final preview this week is on CBBC, which is preparing to introduce us to Gordon Ramsay's daughter, Matilda. Produced by the chef's indie One Potato, Two Potato, Matilda and the Ramsay Bunch will offer a bit of cookery as well as an Osborne-style glimpse into the Ramsay family and their adventures. Here they are on holiday in LA and Matilda has offered to cook the first family meal.
2: After
3: working up an appetite, I'm heading back home to hit the stoves and cook up a special celebration meal for everyone. Every time we come to Los Angeles, the first meal we have is my American burgers, smoky LA fries amazing whoopies. It's a randy tradition and I love traditions like this. This is my beef mince and I'm gonna start by adding in the garlic powder, but you can use fresh garlic as well. Real burgers are very easy to make. Salt, pepper, Worcester sauce. They're just a bit of a mixing job, really. This is the fun bit. I always like getting my hands dirty. It feels really strange. It feels a bit like putty.
0: Uh, Bearing in mind we're probably not the target audience for this, but uh, Faber, what did you make of it? I didn't like this at all.
2: (laughs) It looked good, and I liked all the little pop-up credits and graphics and stuff, and I thought there was a lot of um, care and attention gone into it. But um, for a cooking programme, there wasn't much cooking in it.
0: There was virtually no cooking.
2: The recipe was a burger and chips, which I wasn't hugely impressed by. And Healthy nutritious meals for, for CBBC viewers. And also I didn't particularly have, want to follow the Ramsey family around on their privileged
0: holiday. And also who goes on the holiday and then
1: cooks? No Did you
0: mind. enjoy the insight into the Ramsey family?
1: I did, actually. I I was prepared to hate them straight away because it felt like the rich kids of Instagram, you know, come to life. And I did feel a little bit sort of my life is inadequate watching this. But then I thought if I was eight or nine, I think this was absolutely brilliant because this is exactly what everybody wants to do. Have fun, hang about with a little bit of sort of starry glamour. I thought she was brilliant. I thought the young girl herself was actually really, really likable, much more likable than the rest of the family. And I actually did learn a little bit watching her cookery. I actually thought the cookery was better than the rest of the show. You know, the sort of watching the kids doing whatever they do wasn't as interesting as watching her actually doing her bit of cooking. And I have taken on board her recipe for smoky fries. <laughs> have you <laughs> the extra bit of paprika and everything else? I will be doing that myself. Well, you can bring him in so, next week's podcast, absolutely. Stephen. But um, <laughs> but no. But this is the thing. As you know, I'm a I'm a mature gentleman. You know, of advancing senility. And not a young child. A young child would think this is like fantasy TV. It was. Oh, it's it was, like the bee's knees. That's the thing. You've got loads of cool kids, people hanging out. You know that is is incredible. And so for us, so CBBC, they've sort of they've managed to kind of get in this sort of fantasy Americana Hollywood lifestyle with a little bit of Englishness. To me, it's a really interesting thing. Whether it works with the kids, I don't know, but I don't think they'll they'll find the things that we adults find annoying. And I think that little Tilly is is a star. She's much more of a star than any other kid, any of the other family, and much less swearing than her father. <laughs> Maybe yeah. There wasn't that's any the edit's in probably it's really bad. You've got to get so much. That's why it's so short. You know. But he's. I, I was surprised at how much he's in it actually. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. even the sort of you know. I think they've got to wedge him in. Whereas I, I personally would watch her and none of the others. Because she's got enough of a personality, she genuinely seems interested. I mean she's what, eight or nine or something? And it's like um, precocious. You know, but no, she's genuinely interested in cooking. I mean that's an unusual thing. And she sort of knows what she's talking about. You don't get the idea that somebody's telling her what to do, you know? Um, Although everything's quite
0: carefully prepared for her. She's well, she lobbing a, stuff in when bowls. When she dropped and... a
1: baked potato on the floor and, and smashed it up, I quite like that bit. You know?
0: <laughs> we think that uh, Gordon Ramsay's not renewed his contract with Channel 4. So it's quite interesting to see him pitch up on the BBC. Yeah. Yeah, well, Maybe he's going to renew it re- he's work. working
1: full time in America. I mean, you know, he's got no time for us poor English, you know. It's, that's the thing. It's, we're, we're the last people he needs to kind of uh, cat to now. He's a star in Hollywood, and that means he's a star worldwide. <laughs> All right,
0: fantastic. Matilda and the Ramsey Bunch continues on the 21st of April on CBBC. And that's your lot for this episode. Thanks, as always, to all of my guests Alex Farber, Stephen D. Wright, and Vanessa Engel. We'll be back, as usual, in a couple of weeks. Until then, I've been Jake Cantor, and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now.
3: You've been listening to Broadcast Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.